Hi there, this is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the Consultants Consultant. I work with data science teams, helping them work even smarter, faster and nicer. If you're brilliant and you want to be even better, this is the podcast for you. So ladies and gentlemen, today I have Dean Marchiori, who's one of the top 10 data, uh, sorry, IAPA leaders in analytics in 2019. Um, I've been been following him for a little while and I finally got him to talk to us today about working smarter, faster and nicer. Welcome, Dean. How are you? G'day, Cindy. Yeah, good to be here. Pretty good, thanks. How are you? Cool. We were just, I was just noticing on your LinkedIn profile, you have a master's degree that you got before you got your bachelor's degree and tell me how that works. Yeah, I, I kind of, like a lot of people, I don't think that I had a natural path into data analytics. It wasn't, you know, data science. Everyone sort of says that, but I think it's because it wasn't, there was no real established path. So, mm-hmm. I kind of had a previous career, but it's sort of come full circle, right? So I was interested in maths and wanted to do something in that area and actually started doing that at uni. Um, but then kind of thought, it's been embarrassing, but I kind of thought, oh, like what kind of job am I going to get in maths, right? Like this is sort of like early mid 2000s and yeah. data wasn't really a real sexy thing. There were, you know, obviously people doing it, but uh, I, I didn't really know about these opportunities. So I thought, oh, you know, finance is probably a good path. You know, I can, this is pre GFC, so there were a lot of jobs, a lot of money, yeah. a lot of excitement. I was really interested by the financial markets and wanted to do something there. So I kind of pursued that and um, sort of went via finance and kind of ended up just accruing a, a, a coursework master's um, with, without really even going back to maths. But it actually led me sort of full circle because I got a job in a large bank doing mm-hmm. finance stuff, doing trading. And it, it exposed me to all these roles and all these people that were doing this this mysterious thing that I kind of wanted. And when I saw it, I was, it was sort of like a light bulb. I was like, yeah, that, and that's that's what I want to do. Um, so I ended up going sort of full circle and going back and completing um, completing a BSc in, in, in maths. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I felt it, I needed to plug that gap or, or close yeah. that loop off. And, um, and that was sort of when I retooled myself and sort of started my career in analytics and that's been going it's been going strong ever since yeah it's it's interesting at the moment a lot of the leaders I'm, in, I'm talking to on the podcast essentially didn't come into analytics purely into analytics they came like you through a circuitous path that kind of was like this is where I should be now yeah 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 cool. and you know I get reached out a lot of people go oh how do I how do I get into data science and I I kind of don't want to tell people they should pick another career and do that first and then switch across <laughs> because that's sort of the only advice I know but I, yeah. I think we are sort of in this era now where universities are catching up and they're offering programs yeah. really highly tuned to it so you know, maybe there will be a traditional path coming into it now, but I think the industry is certainly stronger from having people from a really diverse background where you can yeah. connect with people that uh, come from a finance background or people that come from a, you know, a, a bio background or from some sort of physical science. And, um, you know, I think that's really built the industry up in a really interesting place and certainly means you can learn from a lot of interesting people. Yeah, totally. Exactly. So, um, I have a series of questions I always ask, uh, and I am going to ask you first about your daily routines. What what are the daily routines that you have to make you work smarter, faster, nicer? Yeah, I don't I don't know that I have interesting routines. Um, no, it's not about interest. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you know, I used to commute into Sydney um, for work from, you know, about an hour away and I I really wanted to try and avoid crowds and and try and streamline that and and beat the peak hours. So I've, weirdly, I've just stuck with it now. I work 10 minutes from home, but I still get to work really early, sort of, you know, I'm Mm. usually at work by eight. I usually have lunch eaten and done by about 11 in the morning, which Mm -hmm. I've been teased about before. And then I'm out, I'm out really early. That way I can, you know, get dinner ready and look after the kids and stuff. So I find that really helps just being a little bit contrarian. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of, science, contrarian, <laughs> yeah, right. <What> that? <laughs> uh, um, but that, that's, you know, I, I think while I'm at work, something I've done recently is I, I purchased this new pair of really nice noise cancelling headphones. You're right. And, you know, I, but I didn't want to be one of those jerks that just has headphones on all day and doesn't mm-hmm. talk to anyone. So, yeah. you know, I, but it's had a really good effect. So, um, you know, so what, like everyone uses headphones, right? It's not really groundbreaking, but I found it actually works as a really good psychological trigger for me when I need to do deeper work is mm-hmm. not really what I'm listening to. I don't have, you know, a silver bullet solution to routines, but mm-hmm. just having that on, I think triggers me and gives me sort of this, this psychological trigger that I'm doing different work now. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, I'm in an open plan office and the only, the reason why I raised this is I think it's really important to give your, your colleagues and coworkers still permission to interrupt you, yeah. even if you're wearing headphones. And a lot of people yeah, say, yeah. I, I didn't want to interrupt you. That's why you've got them on. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It's, I don't want to get distracted and it helps me somehow on a meta level. Yeah. But I actually issued colleagues with like a scrunched up bit of paper each and said, you know, whenever you need me, you throw this over and hit me with it. And that way I know <laughs> you need attention. And everyone sort of laughed and we had a joke about it, but it, I think it was an important thing to do because if someone's got something trivial and I just want to have a bit of a gas bag, that they're probably not going to interrupt you and throw a bit yeah. of paper at you. But if they need you, they know they've got that permission to do yeah. it. Yeah. So I think, you it's know, a secret have, code to accessing yeah. my brain. Yeah, and, yeah. and it kind of cleared the air a bit. And I think, you know, a lot of these routines and things, and we, I think we, some of us are a little bit precious about how we work and we're coding and whatever, but and I think that's all good and you, you have to do, whatever you have to do uh, and maybe that's different for everyone but I think acknowledging that everyone's here just to do their work and we should still be able to interact and be flexible and it doesn't matter if our routines get a little bit upset or if someone wants to interrupt us or we mm-hmm. get taken off track I think that you know we should embrace that and, and not overlook the fact that we're all part of a team mm-hmm. so I don't I don't stick too heavily to routines there's little things I do like that but I think it's important to, um, to nice. be flexible as well. And is your team all in the same geographical area? No, we've got kind of places everywhere. So um, I do have a team of about half a dozen people that work sort of where I am, but then there's others that that will work um, in other locations. So, you know, that means you have to be a bit flexible. And, and, you know, I I work within a business unit that has people from a real diverse range of backgrounds. So Mm -hmm. there's people that kind of are a bit data-minded and there's people that are, um, you know, plant scientists and botanists through to um, pilots through to all, all sorts of weird backgrounds. Yeah, so yeah. again, that's a good, a good rich tapestry, but it means everyone works different, you know, so yeah, exactly. you kind of have to do that. I don't try and hold myself to anything too rigid. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you deal with remote, like working with people in remote teams? Do you have particular ideas that you like to kind of get out there ways you like to work? Yeah, I drive a lot and go see people face to face a lot. Okay. Um, I do a lot, you know, via you know Skype and and, and teleconferencing yeah. and things as well. Um, but 
you know, we've got a fairly big head office, which is about an hour and a half away from where I am. So I might spend a day there and, and you know, batch a few meetings up because I still think there's a lot of value to be gained out of face-to-face work. Flesh, yeah. 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 And, you know, like I said, a lot of people work differently and I'm, you know, I'm working in an industry that, um, you know, you may have to liaise with someone who isn't particularly really up to date with video conferencing and they, they may be more old school and, yeah, that's, that's great. I like doing that and I like getting out and about. So yeah, just being flexible, I think is, is the key and just trying to respond to what that other stakeholder needs. You know, you're obviously meeting for some mutual benefit. You need something from them. They need something from you. So you've got to meet halfway in terms of how you work with other people and Mm -hmm. sort of have a bit of empathy around how someone else wants to be communicated to without sort of demanding, you know, Oh, it's, it's 2020, you should be using zoom or Slack or whatever. So I'd like to in a lot of cases, but um, that's that's all part of the fun. Well, it's part about adapting, adapting to what the stakeholder needs rather than what you think you need. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's easy to be really opinionated in, in tech roles, I think. So it it's, takes some maturity maybe to put that to bed and listen to some other people and, you know, they've got a different background. So yeah. let's not impose our will on everyone. And do you have a particular cadence for communications? Like with your team, do you meet every day, every week? Are you, are you working agile? What are you... Yeah, um, it's strange, you know, everyone's got their own way of working. So um, we don't, we don't have a really rigid cadence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to work pretty independently um, in a lot of the things I'm working on, but you know, a lot of the projects, so I work internally um, for a large organization. So sometimes it's hard to kind of box things up into sort of deliverables. Things are a lot slower, longer burn, and they might feed into larger projects. So I kind of artificially have to create those environments sometimes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of work I do, I'll, I'll batch into, we've kind of used six week cycles here. So, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll sit down and have this really good divergent sort of planning session around what we want to achieve. And that's great. And it might be, it might be something that I'm doing forever, or it might be something we think will take a year, or it might mm-hmm. be something simple, but we'll kind of go, right, well, that's great but let's converge on some action now. And like, what's the thing we can deliver in six weeks Right. that enables us to kind of box it and go, right, well, we can take a risk on this if we're not sure about it. Six weeks mm-hmm. is not the end of the world. Yeah. And it also means that, you know, you can get a bit of breathing space from your managers and the people above you going, right, well, you go and work away and we're going to expect you to come back to us in six yeah. weeks. So now, how much learn to be creative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It gives you some breathing space and look how much support and check-ins you need in that period of time, I guess is governed by what the work is and how much support you need. But I think it's good to have some, I certainly feel comfortable with some structure. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is, I guess, a way of having structure without really having structure. It it kind of blocks things off. Um, And um, yeah, I find that, I find that works really well. Mm -hmm. I've kind of abandoned measuring productivity at the daily level. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I tend to do it just at the end of the week now, I look back and go, you know, what, what did I achieve? Um, you know, I, I used to get caught up with measuring things daily. We always need to be making progress, but, you know, you just get taken off track or there's a team meeting and, you know, I used to have all this negativity around, oh, why do I have to go to this thing? It's distracting me. You know, I, I need to be doing my work, you know, yeah. but that's, that's work too, you know, that's not a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So giving yourself the permission to burn a day and go, you know what, today's about helping others or having a team day or just having a talk fest, I'll catch up tomorrow. And, you know, so I don't worry day to day. I don't force myself to have daily standups. 
But I definitely like to look back at the end of the week and at least go, well, how are we tracking? Are we on target? And then at the end of six weeks, do we have something deliverable that we can ship? Regardless of whether we continue on with that or not, at least we can bank some learnings. We've got something tangible. Um, And I think that's that's really helped, I guess, strike a balance between being flexible and kind of not just meandering on for months without delivering anything. Yeah, yeah, it's been pretty important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the team works better that way. You think? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. And and you know, you can change the rules at any time. So, you know, you may have another project where you need to be working slightly differently, or you might need to be embedded on something else. So, that's totally fine. I think it's you don't want to have structure be kind of like a chain that's holding you back. But I think, you know, you, you need to have some structure. So as long as you can define a way of working mm-hmm. and be adaptable, I think, and then stick to it, that's great. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't change and be agile with, with something mm-hmm. else because, the, you know, the part of the fun is, you know, every project's different and you, know, you get to work with different people in different domains. So, um, you know, that's, that's all part of it. So it sounds like you that's a lesson you've learned in your career. What's a, what are what are the other lessons? Are there any other lessons that you've been, you know, someone gave you great advice or things you've learned through just mucking it up or by accident? Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess that um, we always talk about what's the problem we're trying to solve and you know this is like an old trope right like you need we need to def- clearly define the problem before we start working on something and and i agree with that completely so i think we should be doing that but i think when it comes to learning and and, and research i almost flip that and, and kind of do more what i've kind of termed solution first learning yeah where I, you know i'll look for new ideas and read blog posts and and i'll look at new solutions that i don't particularly think I have an application for. So rather than, oh, I've got a problem, I need to research what solution. You know, I tend to just work from both ends and hope they kind of connect and meet up in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I found that's been really useful. And, you know, it's kind of fun. You get to learn about stuff that might be a little bit out of your domain. And then all of a sudden you'll go, oh, actually, you know what? I'm I'm glad I learned that because, you know, it's been sort of sitting there in the back of my mind. But now now we can solve this new problem that's just cropped up. Mm -hmm. So I, I... it's sort of inverting the logic a little bit, but I, I think it's it's helped me broaden my skill set a little bit and push mm-hmm. out into areas that I wouldn't have pushed out into otherwise. Um, okay. And I think just being humble, I guess, is another big one. It's it's easy to fall into a trap of saying, you know, we're here to help make decisions, therefore we should, you know, tell people how they need to be doing their job. Yeah. I think understanding that you can learn a lot from other people and having a bit of tact about how you go about your work <laughs> to get the best out of someone and have a really good productive working relationship where you can contribute and you can also learn from other yeah. people. And that's, you know, I don't know any magical way to do that other than looking back and cringing at previous ways you've handled situations and just hoping you don't make those same mistakes in the future. Maybe it's just an experience thing and you know, I'm sure I'll look back on the way I do things now in five or 10 years and go, wow. Well, you really had a lot to learn. But that's, yeah, exactly. That's good. I, I remember seeing a straight away. I saw a speaker a couple of years ago, Alan Weiss, uh, who's like a consultant's consultant in the States, and he said, I'm continually amazed at how stupid I was yesterday. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much that. You know, 10 years ago, God, I was dumb. <laughs> Bingo. Because we're always acquiring, as you say, m- more domains to bring in and we're acquiring more understanding of, stakeholders and the environment change and the context changes. I think it's, 
when you're trying to mentor or train more junior staff mm. or interns that are coming in, I think it's important not to try and force those lessons on people as well. You know, like mm -hmm. you, oh, you must use this technology, you must do this, and this is the way we do it. And I think it's good to lead by example and show best practices, but I think mm -hmm. it's also important not to force people just to do things that you've learned without giving them the opportunity to learn it firsthand. I think mm -hmm. it's okay to watch people make some mistakes and um because you know that's that's how you learn, right? You you sort of get these things burnt in the way you work by you know embarrassment or uh -huh. you know new revelations you've made, and you know I think it's important for others to do the same thing. And I guess yeah. the challenging part of a leader is how you, you know what lessons do people learn from the from themselves, and what lessons can't you afford them to learn? By yeah, yeah. And it's what what do you that that freedom to fail concept that you've got that you can fail and it will be okay because you're containing the failure to not make the business go belly up. It's just going to be a project is six weeks behind or whatever. Yeah. yeah, totally. But even that's hard, you know, like you want people to have a bit of fear of failure as well, to kind <laughs> of like a little bit of healthy or constructive anxiety is good. <laughs> um, but, you know, you don't want that to be, you know, um, something that's going to cause anxiety or, or, you know, paralysis in what they're doing. You yeah, want exactly. them to take risks, yeah. but you want them to know that, you know, um, and I guess just just knowing that, um, you know, you're going to support whatever decision someone makes. So you can yeah. go, you know, like you're going to have to deal with these consequences if you get it wrong and I'm going to let you make this decision. But whatever decision you make, I'm going to back you up 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they go, okay, great. You know, I'm, you haven't really got this safety net. Like it's like, you know, you the decisions you make are going to matter. And when you go out and do something on your own, when you're more experienced, there's, there's going to be consequences and you need to learn how to manage that risk and how to make smart decisions. Um, but also knowing that you're not going to get, you're going to get the blame, right? We're, we're all in this together. And you, you do this like a thousand times, even when you do an analysis, you're making all these little decisions as you go. Uh -huh. And, you know, if you're not comfortable in doing that and you're not comfortable in defending your assumptions and using your judgment, then you know you're not really going to get anywhere. So mm -hmm. I think you've just got to you've just got to do that sometimes and be prepared to go back and change it if it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And be humble, you know, and yeah, learn yeah. from your mistakes. Nice, I like it. Um, what about? Let's ask you about. Oh, what makes a better or worse data analyst, data scientist, data person in your experience? Yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of steal all my ideas from other people. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 sort of a personal hero of mine is, uh, I thought about this a bit, a, a personal hero of mine is Commander Chris Hadfield. He's a Canadian astronaut. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you go into YouTube, you'll see heaps of really cool videos. Is he, he the one who gave like the daily video for his son that was that went wild, wildfire? Yeah, he, he took a guitar up and, 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 um, recorded a David Bowie song and yeah so he was quite cool uh, he's got a lot of um, good thoughts on you know leadership and dealing with risk and fear and, and he's got a really good book called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth mm -hmm. um, I'll send you a link for the show yeah, notes yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. and it's um, you know he talks about what makes a good astronaut and you know I'm not saying we're astronauts or anything like that but you know I, I kind of latched onto the definition and thought well this is really applicable in a lot of other fields mm -hmm. and so his definition was it's someone who can solve complex problems rapidly mm -hmm. with incomplete information. Right. And I think that's a really, you know, I'm sure that's really useful if you're an astronaut. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's really useful in a lot of situations. And I've found that it's something that I've always recognized as a good trait, you know, of someone who can quickly solve a complex problem and come up to speed with some new weird thing that they've got to interface with. 
and recognizing that you've got incomplete information, you yeah. know, that you're able to still function and push forward and still thrive in that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that's a really good indication. And there are certain, certain personality types that are just, that are just made for that. You know, they've got this real passion for solving problems and they, they mm -hmm. like undoing complexity, but they're, they're pragmatic and they want to keep moving forward and, and they're okay with a bit of ambiguity. They don't need to know everything before they can say yes or no, because, you know, stats, it's all, it's all making decisions in the presence of uncertainty. You know, you need uh -huh. to really em embrace it. It's not a bad thing. I think that's, that's certainly not the only trait. You know, I think there's, there's plenty of other traits that make someone really successful, but that's something that I've related to. And that's something mm -hmm. that I've found has helped give me a good mental model on some important characteristics. Nice. Excellent. And so have you recruited data people in the past? How do you do that? Yeah. Um, not heaps, but, but yeah. And it, again, it's hard, right? Because you can't sort of say, you know, do you have this qualification? Do you have that? Bingo. You know how, you know, you know how the world yeah. works. So I think it's about taking risks and understanding that people from diverse backgrounds can help contribute. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, what cuts across a lot of it though, and something I haven't mentioned is communication. So, mm -hmm regardless of what someone's technical background is, I think being able to communicate uh, well, um, communicate that might be ideas, learn, you know, mm -hmm. telling stories or just being a good listener and understanding, having empathy. Those, those softer skills, I think, is something that's going to help you succeed. Whatever technical skills you need, you know, you need to be hiring people that are smart enough to learn those things. Yeah. And we're all smart enough to learn the skills we need to do our job that are commodity skills. Uh -huh. But developing those communication skills, I think, and, and recognizing at least, even if you're not great at it, that, you know, that's an important thing to have and you want to mm -hmm. keep working on it. Um, one way that I think it's a good way to test that is through looking at data visualizations. You know, a lot of people yeah. have these, ta oh, you need to do take-home <laughs> exams or technical whiteboard interviews. And, you know, you hear yeah. a lot of these horror stories from tech companies. I, I just think having someone tell a story with data visually, yeah. mm -hmm. I think, can reveal a lot about their skill set, you know, um, and it's a really nice, easy thing that someone may have already done if they've got a portfolio of work. Mm -hmm. There are projects out there like the Tidy Tuesday project in the uh, R community that is all about sharing and learning about data visualizations and basic skills with data. Mm -hmm. And it really shows, you know, curiosity, um, basic data manipulation, mm -hmm. creating a story, and thinking outwardly, you know, how are others going to perceive these data that I'm presenting them? And then how is it going to be accessed and viewed by others? So having that real empathy, I think mm -hmm. something as simple as making a chart, I think, it, you know, you can develop a lot of really useful skills and it can be a, a really good way to help develop somebody um, and identify areas where, where they can where they can improve yeah, yeah. outside of, you know, you know, fancy machine learning stuff and show me all the cool projects you've done. I think it's something that is a little bit more accessible and realistic to, to get people to open up and show you what, what they mm -hmm. know and what they can learn. And how do you find that out? Do you put them in a room and talk to them? Do you take them to, for coffee? Do you, what do you do? Yeah, it's, it's really great having them just show off to, to you. So I really yeah. like it. You know, if people have got a portfolio of stuff, you, you know, don't be, don't be, yeah, don't, don't be scared to share. It doesn't have to be fancy. You know, it doesn't even necessarily have to be for anyone in particular, but it, you know, I think if anyone wants a job, it's reasonable to assume that they have an interest in that area. And if they have an interest in the area, I'm sure they've dabbled and they've done stuff and, you know, um, show, show me some of that stuff, you know, talk about it. Um, it's embarrassing to sometimes, uh, be vulnerable, I guess, and, yeah. and 
just, you know, display what you're learning and, you know, particularly if you're starting off in a career, but I think giving someone the freedom to do that and have a discussion without judging them too harshly on it, I think is a really meaningful way to have a conversation that's outside of the normal, tell me about yourself, you know, and <laughs> the sort of canned responses you get in interviews. So, yeah, thanks and weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, not everyone has the time and, and whatever and to be able to develop these things. A lot of people can't share what they're working on in companies, but mm. producing a simple chart or a data visualization is something that you can do so quickly and it, and it reveals so much around your thought process and it's not so much, you know, you get a mark out of a hundred and, you know, do we hire you or not, but it's more around it. It's like a little window into your soul and you can kind of have these great conversations around it. Yeah. And that to me is more meaningful than, you know, um, uh, when you're trying to really dig down deep into what drives someone and how they view data and communication. And yeah, it's something I've found has been a useful thing to do. Mm. Cool. Excellent. How do you keep your professional development going? You're clearly, you're clearly reading stuff for, and, and being exposed to stuff in several domains. You've already said that, but how do you do that? What's your process? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's lumpy. Um, so I like a lumpy process. Yeah, I wish I was maybe more disciplined with it. Uh, but I think it's about discipline. You know, I, my computer broke the other day. Oh. And I, I, IT were like, okay, you know, they needed to do some open heart surgery on it. You need to leave it with us and we need to replace this and that. I don't really know what I did with it. But <laughs> I had it to work from home that day as well. So I kind of thought, oh, okay, great. So I'm working outside the office with no access to the network, no computer. So I'm on my own device. And I thought, okay, that's great. You know, I've, I've, I'm going to give myself permission to catch up on, it's just a good time. You know, I thought oh, I'll catch up on this, this online course I wanted to do. And there's all these bookmarked articles and blog posts and papers I wanted to read. You know, we've all got this stack of, of stuff that we're interested in. And I just sat down and gave myself permission to do that for a day. And I was just filled with this, you know, new passion and this verve for life when I got back to work, you know, there was this stuff I dabbled in and thought I really need to spend more time learning that. And, but I don't have time now. I'll come back to it, but you know, I did it. And then I came back and, and the gains I made in that week after I came back from that Friday off, just doing that kind of work was, you know, it was phenomenal. I was like, Oh wow, I should do this every day. But you know, you've got to, you've got to just do work sometimes. So I think, you know, I don't know whether you have to do it every week, every fortnight, maybe just one day a month, but, you know, you and your team or you individually just locking yourself away and watching a screencast or reading some blog posts or having a book club or, or just switching yourself off a little bit and giving, yeah, you know, yeah. today's a research day. Sometimes you need that if you can't, you know, chip away and do an hour a day because, you know, stuff always gets in the way, right? So it's not the process. I can't, I can't do that. I'm, I'm more of an obsessive person. Give me a block of time. And yeah. I can do that. But I'll oh, just read one little thing a day. No, I can't. Yeah, and, but, but I think the significance was, you know, I, I didn't have email. I didn't have, you know, I couldn't just go, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll jump on and pull those numbers for, you know, it was like, no, sorry, I, I can't, you know. I, I'll be back on deck Monday. I'll help you out then. I'll, I'll call you first thing. But, um, you know, I was out of the water, right? So um, mm. it, it really gave me permission to do that. So I think giving yourself permission to learn and then, you know, what should you learn? You know, yeah, who knows, right? Like, I think it's just following your curiosity and, and like I said, not being, not, not, not having it be a chore. Like oh, I've got this problem. I need to research X. I need to read everything I need to read on it. It's like, no, no, just, you might have to do that, but you know, just read stuff that's interesting. Even if you so don't know what you're going to do, do with it. 
What kind of stuff did you read on that day? What kind of stuff had you bookmarked? Is that, Are there particular sites or domains? Yeah, yeah, good point. So, like, where do you where do you find stuff that's interesting? Mm. So, um, the internet is pretty important. So yeah, but it's so big. Tw- yeah, yeah, so tw- Twitter's great for – so I'm pretty heavily involved in the R community. So, mm-hmm. looking at, you know, the R stats hashtag and, and following a bunch of people that, that you look up to, people produce content and push it out. So – you know, I find Twitter and social media a bit of a chore, uh, but, it, you know, and there's probably a bit of a signal to noise ratio problem there where there's a lot of noise you've got to get through. But bookmarking occasional nuggets you find from people that you like, you've seen their work before. Yeah. Um, looking at the R Weekly, um, which is like a community-driven website that aggregates a lot of interesting posts. So yeah. um, I'll send a link to that as well. R Weekly, the Tidy Tuesday Project. Um, there's a, there's a lot of sort of aggregated places where you don't have to sort of trawl the whole internet. It, it kind of curates it for you. And I'm sure other communities out there, um, that are more maybe aligned with other listeners' skill sets have similar things. Um, but for mine, for the art community, which is pretty popular, um, there's a lot of great places you can go to like that, get inspiration and just read weird stuff. Um, and putting stuff out there as well is important. Um, and you can get feedback from, from all sorts of people through those same channels. So don't be afraid to use it as a two-way tool. You know, mm-hmm. you can read and passively do stuff, but, you know, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll try and play around with this myself. Mm-hmm. If you're really brave, maybe you'll share it or, or create a blog of your own if you want to. Um, that's You can get a whole new element of feedback that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but be curious. Use the tools that are out there, even if you don't potentially you know really feel that interested in using stuff like blogs and twitter you know if you force yourself out of your comfort zone occasionally you can um that can that can sort of pay for itself um so be be creative and go out looking for stuff there's plenty out there yeah so if you were going to set up an analytics capability from scratch what would you take into account yeah, well, I've had to do this before. Um, yes, so okay, cool. So it's what fun, yeah. Um, thought process? I bet you went divergent, then convergent. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to have a strategy um, that you can tie all your work into. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you, you kind of start by getting romanticised about, oh, imagine all this cool technology I can set up and all these cool problems we can solve. But I think... You know, it sounds a bit stale, but but having a strategy that will help get buy-in for the things that you want to do or the things you've been told maybe you have to do. And it's a bit of marketing and, and whatever. Buy-in from whom? From stakeholders, from management, from from analysts? Who? Who do you want yeah. buy-in yeah, well, I, th- I think everyone ultimately, but uh, I think, you know, you've been hired for a reason. You're usually setting up this capability for a reason and that's usually a top-down reason. So I think having something that you can say, ah, are we going to do this? And this is exactly how it ties into Mr. CEO, Mr. CEO, your particular view of, 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 of why you want to set this up. And you can get a bit creative around doing that and they're hiring you because they want you to tell them how best to get value out of data. So you, you need to come to the table with these solutions, but you need to think about how you can sell that up the chain and get buy-in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, from the bottom up, right? So I think that's great, uh, but you don't want to just be all talk. I think you need to start delivering value immediately, just small incremental bits of value immediately. Uh, you know, I don't believe with locking yourself away for a year and saying, you know, oh, we're going to have this big platform launch. It's going to solve the problems right. we've got. So, you know, outline it. Six down. Weeks, you've already said six That's weeks. That's it. 
Yep. Manufacture a way that you can start incrementally delivering value. And the reason why that's important is because that will give stakeholders that are in other parts of the organization, so people that are maybe your end users or mm -hmm. other people that you need buy-in from, some sort of tangible thing to say, oh, yeah, you're actually, it's not all talk. I can actually see you're delivering value for me. But, hey, this doesn't this isn't really working for me. If you did it slightly better, you know, maybe I could use this tool as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where you really start to pick up traction. So I've always thought of it as like top down is important. Bottom up is important. So like dealing with the end users and delivering value, but, and then the real skill is trying to get those two things to kind of meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not one or the other. I think you've kind of got to balance both. Um, so it's not, you know, it's a, it's not really a, a cookbook solution. It's easier said than done, but that's kind of the mental model I've tried to, you know, um, I've tried to use that top down, bottom up. And if you can get it to all connect, um, that's great. And often it, often it won't, you know, you'll, you'll think you've got a good idea and end users won't like it, or it's hard to get people to give you feedback or, you know, perhaps you've got some great tool, but you just, you know, the company decides to go in a different direction. Uh -huh. It's all part of doing business. But I think another important thing is to codify your, your ethics as well. So, Ooh. yeah, it's good to have, you know, strategy and come up with new tools and deliver value and, you know, look really sexy like you're doing stuff. But I think having ethics and principles and, and setting those expectations up front, I think, is a really important step to make sure that your team and the way you approach your work is a consistent and ethical kind of framework and you don't end up with um, toxic ways of working and you know there's there's work you can do to um you don't have to invent this yourself there's stuff out there like datapractices.org is a good community driven example i'll send a link to that as well where they've kind of got a bit of a code of practice for doing data analysis and things you can do to promote ethical um data analysis work Mm -hmm. around how you share data, how you use data, how you make decisions uh, around it. So it's, you know, there's a lot of resources out there and I think this is going to be, a, you know, a big thing in the future. We're kind of in the wild west with data science at the moment. I think, you know, having something in your team strategy around how you deal with data ethically and how you deal with making decisions ethically, I think mm -hmm. is something that is evolving and it's going to be more and more important and you need to make, that a deliberate part of the culture of your team so that people know where they stand and, and you've got something you can you can stand behind. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, great. Um, complex things, data-naive stakeholders. Mm. How do you, I mean, clearly empathy is a very strong underpinning for all the work that you do. Is there, are there any tips you've discovered over time for explaining complex stuff? Yeah, I, so don't bother doing it is a good <laughs> approach for a while. Um, yeah, so it depends, right, like everything. But, you know, I'm a, I think we can all look back and cringe at times where we've tried to show how smart we are and, and you know, force technical stuff down people's throats and try and talk at them and explain to them how, you know, oh, we did this fancy model and this is how it works and this is why it's going to be so much better than what you've been doing for 10 years. I think a lot of time people don't care. Um, they, they may care in some instances, yeah. but when you're a trusted person within an organization and, you know, I think building that trust is one thing and I think that mm -hmm. comes from actions and helping and, and being empathetic. Mm -hmm. um, but 
being within an organization, you're, you're there to do a role. They've hired you to understand and know that complex stuff. Mm-hmm. They often don't want to know that complex stuff. So don't try and explain the complex data stuff to people because they've hired you to do that. Now, they do want something. They want you to explain something, but it's usually not the type of model you've used. It's usually the answer to the problem that they've asked you and hopefully you know what that problem is. So spend your time explaining to them how this is going to make their life easier, how this is going to solve that problem or how this is going to unlock some new insight for them. Uh And if they want to know, how did you come to this? Can you explain behind, you know, explain how you came to this then by all means um you can then you can then break it down but that's Mm -hmm. i don't think this is something that we should be doing heaps you know like uh, coming up with some strategy to show people how 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 complex the work is we do try and simplify it go the other way um i think it's by all means i think it's hugely important to be able to justify it so I'm a big fan of having, you know, reproducible and replicatable work. So you can go back and show every step of the way how you produced your results. Uh, I think it's important to to, to really clearly document processes. Like I spent a huge amount of time writing documentation that no (laughs) one will ever read. Um, Maybe I'll read it in the future, which is valid, but I probably won't. But if someone asks for it as as a professional, I need to know that I can show them and explain that to them. And, yeah. you know, that's a case-by-case basis how you actually do it, right? You need to understand someone else's background, like you said. But it's not something that I come out of the gates with. Um, so I would just focus on explaining them the things that they need to be explained, the things they want to know, mm-hmm. rather than the things you want to tell them. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, find out what excites them, not what excites you. Yeah, and, no, and that's, that's, and that's a hard thing to try and do. So... Yeah, I don't bother. You know, um, if people want to know how smart I am, I'll tell them. But most of the time, they don't care, right? They just want to know how they can be better at their job. And, you know, I think getting satisfaction out of helping other people rather than just developing cool tech. I think, you know, if if all you're concerned about is pushing the boundaries of, you know, machine learning and new techniques, then that's, that's probably maybe working in industry is not the best fit. You need to really... You need to really be excited about helping others be better at their job, not helping you be better at your job, because that's where you get the real, the real gains and the real impact. Nice, excellent. Um, um, complex data. We've talked about that. I got, a, I got a question that's that's not on the list, but I'm sure you'll have some ideas about this. How do you make meetings more effective? Oh well, um, I, I guess. It depends. If I'm the one holding the meeting, uh-huh. I try and keep it really, really, really short uh-huh. and, and and to the point. But I try and uh, I, I try and drip feed information to people before the meeting. I, I don't like this kind of like I need something. I'll book a meeting and then I'll I'll take you hostage in a room and sit down and explain what I want and put you on the spot. I think it's important to take people on the journey a little bit. So. You know, the meeting the meeting itself might be the last thing you do, but I think just stopping by someone's desk and saying, hey, you know, I'm working on something interesting. I'd, I'd really like your help with this. You know, I think you'd be really, really valuable. Uh, I'll send you more info later. Um, oh, okay, well, hang on. Well, what is it? Oh, okay, I'll give you a two-minute explanation and you do something on the whiteboard. Then you might send them something you've worked on and get some feedback. And yeah. then, you know, the meeting itself might be more driven around like some decisions you want to make, right? So I think just talking to people and communicating normally don't, like I said, don't hold people hostage in a room and expect to get some sort of outcome. 
-hmm. However, you know, like anyone that's worked in a big organization, you just get invited to a lot of meetings. Yeah. Um, who are like, oh, you know, say no to meetings or don't go to them. You know, they're a waste of time. Um, like I said, I've tried to eliminate this whole how productive am I today? Yeah, so yeah. if I get invited to a meeting, you know, I'll just go. I'm not yeah. going to like not go because I think it's arrogant to say, you know, I don't need to go. I don't need to know about this. But, you know, I think you can always learn something from any situation. I think yeah. if you change your mindset and go, well, you know what, I might get something out of this, I might not. If I'm not getting something out of it, how can I change the narrative of that meeting so I do? You know, how can I find someone interesting in there and go, well, okay, I didn't really learn anything, but I was glad I was there. But, you know, what, who's this other person? Like, what do they do? Maybe I can speak to them at the end of the meeting and we can schedule a coffee catch up or something. So you can always get something out of it. So, you know, go along to meetings if you get invited. Um, you know, you, you might learn something new. Um, you might meet someone new. But if you're holding meetings yourself, you know, I think we all know that, that that strategy of just going to meetings and keeping an open mind will work, but you'll also get legitimately you probably will get frustrated sometimes so you know just try and be smarter yourself and talk to people like people and bring them along on the journey and um if you need to meet and talk about something hopefully you've built up enough of a relationship by then to make it effective yeah yeah um, there's a real toxic culture in some places of like meetings for meetings sake so yeah. um you know I, I think you know walk over to someone's desk that's why I drive around and see other people and pick up the phone and not just email and meet um Certainly, you want to be respectful of people's time, but I think I think you are being a bit more respectful of people's time by engaging early and more hum humanly, you know, like rather than blocking out an hour and then having to explain to them everything from start to finish. And so, it's the meeting before the meeting that makes the difference to the meeting. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's not really politics, but it's just around you know, getting people's buy-in, you know, and that's that's not so you can just get what you want, but it's so you can identify, like, is this going to be of use to you? Like, is this worth us spending time on and mm -hmm. testing the waters a bit first? And then if we need to meet, like, let's have some clear outcomes, but you kind of know we're on the same page already then. Yeah. So, yeah, and, you know, don't underestimate the the value of coffee, you know, <laughs> coffee catch-ups and stuff before you have yeah. a full-blown meeting, I think, is, is a nice way of doing that. And a lot of people do that well and... A lot of people don't. And, it, it, you know, it's tough, right? It's easier said than done. There's silos and people have their own interests and things. But you quickly learn which people in organizations are going to be allies for your work and who are like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Sounds interesting. Yeah, sure. I'm on board. Let's book something in. Yeah, yeah. Versus people that immediately will kind of shut you down and you kind of think, well, that's that's fine. Maybe they're not the best collaborator for this project. Um, maybe I'll find someone else who might be able mm -hmm. to help. Yeah, yeah. Um, so talk to me about your favourite charity. What's your favourite charity? Yeah, I guess um, it's, there's a lot of great charities out there. One I've had a bit of involvement with is St John Ambulance Australia. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I've logged, you know, about 500 hours as a first responder with St John oh. Ambulance doing sort of frontline um, medical care and, and I've got a pretty tough job. I don't do so much of it now, sort of in an earlier part of my life, but... Um, you know, you kind of see them everywhere and, and they've got a pretty tough gig like a lot of charities. Mm. They're dealing with people that are vulnerable and injured and sick and they're often working in really hostile environments mm -hmm. on the front line, uh, often with limited support. So, um, and, you know, they don't get paid, right? They're all mm -hmm. volunteers. So, you know, I think that's something that is always, um, yeah, that's close to my heart personally. Um, and there are a lot of people out there uh, like the Red Cross and other events that you might see out um, in those type of situations. 
Um, so, you know, they're a favorite of mine because I've got a bit of lived experience there. Um, and you know, I think with any volunteer or any charity, if you see people out in the street, if you see land care doing work, cleaning up, a uh, you know, the beach, or if you see people out at events, you know, just like say, thanks for being there, like stop and just thank them. You know, often these things are really thankless. So, you know, I don't have it really like a favorite as such. They're Mm. all doing great work, but I think whatever it is, um, you know, go and volunteer yourself if you have time and you're able to, but if you're not, I think it's important, whatever the charity is, when you come into contact with people that are doing work for the community, it's often thankless. You know, people think, Oh, it must be great to do that work. Well, it's often not like often you're dealing with really crappy situations. So Mm. be nice and say, Hey, like, thanks so much for being here. You're really making a difference. Like Mm. you will make someone's day if you do that and they'll, they'll stay doing that job. And that's really important. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not doing it yourself, but, recognize others for doing it and get interested and, and try and support them even if it's just a pat on the back. Nice. Yes. Beautiful. Great suggestion. And it costs <laughs> you nothing to do that, to just go, thanks. You're doing a I'm you're doing a job that I couldn't do. Thank you so much for helping. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Is there anything else you want to say in closing? No, that's great. It's been great to talk about it. I think as I'm maybe getting older uh, and mm-hmm. I'm not by any means highly experienced i've got a long way to go hopefully my career but i really enjoy starting to think a little bit about the craft and the art behind doing data analysis rather than just getting excited about you know the problems themselves mm-hmm. and it's really great to connect with a lot of people and a lot of uh the other people that have been on your podcast mm-hmm. are great and that they're at that stage where they want to share ideas around mm-hmm. more of the meta aspects of data analysis not just like use this method or here's a cool thing to do or here's a cool problem but you know here's how I actually approach my work you know here's how I set up my paints and how I clean my brushes and yeah. you know how I set you know how I set up my studio like yeah. everyone has this process regardless of whether you're an artist or a scientist or whatever but from the data analysis perspective that's something that's really giving me a lot of satisfaction and if you get uh-huh. into a position of leadership hopefully you get a bit more influence over that sort of stuff if not you can just do it in your own little world <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, that kind of stuff I think is just, you know, an endless source of, of enjoyment and trying to improve. And, you know, I'm really keen to hear from others that are interested in that as well. So anyone out there that finds this interesting or has different opinions, um, you know, reach out to me. Um, if you, I'm sure there'll be a link to how you can get in contact with me from yeah, here. And LinkedIn. I will link just, to your LinkedIn profile. How's yeah, that? Just, just keep communicating and it's great to share these ideas. We've got yeah. this really cool community that's building up that, like I said, when I started my career, i you know, I went into finance because I didn't think it existed, but now we've got this whole new world and it's really yeah. early and we've got a whole new bunch of people that are coming into this industry. So, um, you know, we can build something really special and something that I'm sure we all feel passionate. We can, you know, help organizations be better and share our yeah. ideas. So yeah, let's all do that together. I mean, I know I talked about diverse backgrounds and stuff, but sometimes it's nice hearing a lot of Australians talk about data in Australia. Yeah. So much of like, I didn't mention it, but a lot of the resources and stuff, it's, it's great that the US is so far ahead with a lot of this tech stuff and that's where a lot of the, the resources and podcasts come from. But we're in a really unique sort of environment to do analysis. And mm-hmm. when you're trying to look for jobs and understand the, the people and the ways of working in Australia and the unique challenges you have to butt up against as, you mm-hmm. know, the first data scientist in every company you ever go to, it's good, but it's nice to hear about others' experience as well because it's yeah. certainly different to a lot of the, you know, how to crack a data science job when you know it's written by someone in San Francisco, right? Yeah, so. totally different environment. Yeah, the context means everything. Excellent, thank you. Cool.
This is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the consultant's consultant, and you've been listening to Smarter Data People. This is part of what I do to understand how it is that data scientists can be more effective in the workplace, smarter, faster, and nicer. And if you have a team and you're finding them harder to manage than they could be, if you're constantly trying to squeeze more out of your budget and out of their time, and if you've got stakeholders or they've got stakeholders who are less than happy sometimes, maybe a lot more than sometimes, it can be really annoying and it can make you feel incompetent. I can help you help them get to the important problems faster, target the wasted time and save you time and money, and ultimately delight stakeholders so that you can feel competent again. It's such a good feeling. Talk to me.